continuing this uh, series in Matthew, and uh, I found some words interesting from Chuck Swindoll, who who always writes, I think, and, and preaches in ways that are captivating. But he he just was writing. He says, you know, selfishness has become the lifestyle of the age. We think about ourselves. We watch out for ourselves. We talk about ourselves. We defend ourselves when we're confronted with criticism. And he says, you know, when you look look at the life of Jesus and you look at the life that is outlined again and again throughout God's word, it is much more about how to be unselfish, how to give, how to live in such a way that you find yourself as a people helper, that you um, serve others not expecting to get something in return, how you give rather than to, to get and keep. And that's exactly what I think Jesus was seeking to do when he was speaking now as he came to the very end of his own ministry here. And probably just a few weeks to go here when we come to Matthew 20. He's talking about serving. And we have such interesting ideas, I think, about serving. It's a lot the way we, we look at something. If you go to buy a car and you can have certain options that you want. So you can, you know, well, maybe I'll take those options, maybe I won't. Or, or we fill out some paper and they go, do you want this option or that option? And we come, sometimes come in our relationship to God and we kind of just think of serving in and, 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 and our lives as, as something, well, maybe I'll do this here or there. And in fact, we have options. We compartmentalize the way we even think about our lives, and we go, yeah, maybe I, sh- maybe I, maybe I will serve in this way, and and we have a very interesting way about looking at what serving means, because I don't think Jesus ever looked at it that way. There were no options for him. Um, the way that we used our lives and our God-given gifts weren't to be compartmentalized. It's not kind of like, well, yeah, you know, I'll sign up with you, Jesus, and, and maybe I'll do a few hours at the food shop a week. Or, or possibly what I'll do is, it, you know, I like kids, so I'll serve on Wednesday nights at Adventure Club. Or uh, maybe I'll give a couple hours to the church to be an usher or a greeter. And we do that with serving. We do that with our money. We compartmentalize things. We put them in a place and we go, you know, God, you know, we, we don't understand that he's not just given us this life. He's given her abilities. He's actually allowed for us to have the jobs we have. And in a sense, all that we are and have and that we earn are his. But what we have in our mindset is we kind of say, well, this is all mine, God. And how much should I give to you? And we, we do that in so many areas of our life. We do that with our attitudes as well. And so when you come across this whole concept of serving in, in this idea that Jesus seems to talk about when he gets here in Matthew 20, after he's been talking the kind of community he wanted to create, which was what we had looked at earlier in chapter 19, he's now talking about something so important, so essential, because this is what his life is all about. And it's a life that is given in response to someone who's given you so much. The verses that I think easily can sum up what these, this chapter 20 is about is, is found actually in Romans chapter 11. You can look at Romans chapter 11, verses 35, all the way to chapter 12, verse 1. It's really a good summary of this chapter. Paul has gotten caught up in the wonder and the awe and the love and goodness and mission and everything else about God after he's explained to these Roman Jews the fact that God can do what he wants, how he chooses, whether you punched in early or not, according to like last week's message. It didn't really matter when you came in, but the reality is God is so good that at one point near the very end of all this, this incredible sense of awe and praise to God, he says, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? He's not necessarily a God of fairness. He's a God of faithfulness and grace, which always undermines our world system and understanding of how we live life. 
And so then he just ends for, and says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now you've got to catch these words because from that little phrase, Paul moves into something else. We don't, again, you don't have the chapter and verse marking, so Paul just finishes that and catch the words of what he has to say. In response to this incredibly gracious and good God, he says, Therefore, as a result of all this, I urge you, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service. It's kind of a, not a, an option kind of thing. It's the very idea that if this God is so good and so, and so great and so, so awesome and so loving and so gracious that he gives himself fully to you, he's not looking for some options and some compartmentalization. He's looking for your entire life given in service to him. And so what does that mean? How does that break out in your life? That's what we kind of have to wrestle with. If you look at the background of Matthew 20, it's a, it's a, it's a simple chapter about service. The title of this series in this Chapter 20 that I've given is, is to serve or not be served. You see that on your programs in front of you. And it really is a good question. It's actually our life question that we will answer to God someday. Peter asked that question. He basically had said in chapter 19, after he heard about the rich young ruler who had given, who was, who was standing before Jesus wanting to be one of his followers, and Jesus says, go sell all, and he can't do it, so he walks away sad. Peter looks at Jesus and goes, then who can do this? And, and Jesus says, well, it's not possible for you in your flesh, but it's possible for God to work this into your heart. And then Peter looks at him and goes, but we've given up everything. He says, what's in it for us? Isn't that interesting? Then the very next thought of, of, of Peter is, so what am I getting out of this? And so we looked at last week at this idea of serving without expectations, like love, which is unconditional. It's a gift that we give, whether we deserve it or a person deserves it or not. So also the rewards of serving are a gift from God. And, and our eyes aren't to be necessarily on the reward, although they can be helpful. The reality is our eyes are to be on God, who is gracious and good. And so Jesus, as he is explaining to them this idea of his graciousness and his goodness, and he's trying to help them understand this idea of serving, decides to share with them now for the third time. He gives a prediction of what his life is going to be given towards. He, in a sense, says, let me give you an object lesson. I want you to look at this as I share these words with you as an object lesson of what your life is to be like. This is what the Son of Man came to do. And so as you watch this passage of Scripture, as they're making their way to the festival of Jerusalem, walking among the crowds of people, it says Jesus pulls them aside. Look at verse 17. We're just going to look at three verses today. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem on the way. He took the twelve aside and said to them, and you have to understand up to Jerusalem means no matter where in, in Israel or Palestine you would be, Jerusalem was, it was an elevated city, kind of on a hill. And so whenever you would talk about north, south, east, west, you would talk about going up too. In fact, in those days, especially without airplanes, you, you know, now you want to kind of hide so no one can find you. In those days, you wanted to be up a little higher elevated because then you'd be in a position better to fight someone when it comes to hand-to-hand combat or throwing things at people, right? Things go faster down than they go up. In fact, London is, is referred to often, if you've ever been to England and you've spent some time there, um, London is referred to from all different directions, except for Cambridge and Oxford. It's referred to as going up to, because it was, again, built on an elevated city 
so it could see over and see what was coming. So he says they go up to Jerusalem. That's what that means here. And he took the twelve aside. You have to understand, we're not exactly sure at what point this is, but we're no, we know it's probably sometime within a month or a few weeks before Jesus is actually going to go to the cross and die. And in those days when there was this festival, the Passover, which was going to be celebrated, people would come from all over the world. The Jews who were devout and Gentiles that were devout would make a pilgrimage and make their way to the city. So these, the arteries to the city would be clogged with all kinds of people, throngs of people just spilling out the sides of these paths and these roads, making their way to Jerusalem. So that's what you get this idea. They're up to Jerusalem as they're walking along. Jesus says to his twelve, come here, guys, get out of the mass of people. I want you to come over here and I want to talk to you for a second. We're not really sure what maybe brought this up at this point, but we find out that in his last days, he really wants to make sure for us who are going to be followers of Jesus, we understand what our assignment is. Our assignment is to serve him and to serve him not as an optional thing, but with our entire life. And then how does that work itself out? And he's really asking the question, how are you going to serve him? With what are you going to serve him? What's your heart going to be like when you serve him? And so he pulls them aside. And there's three simple truths that I want to share with you when we look at these verses. The truth about service. And as Jesus gives this brief explanation of his, as he predicts what's going to happen to him as an object lesson, he is basically calling you and me to find out where we fall with regard to this whole idea of service. So you note the resolute ambition to serve God and others in, verse, in the very first part of verse 18. And you, you, you look at these words, we are going up to Jerusalem, you go, well, what do you mean resolute ambition to serve God and others? Well, stay with me for a second, because I'll take you through a few scriptures that help you understand that this was an incredible statement that Jesus was making. Because Jesus was resolved, he was purposeful, he was intent, he was determined to serve God. And so on his way, this is the third time he shares what his resolved ambition is. It's to go to Jerusalem. And at Jerusalem, something was to occur that was his life mission. And nothing would stop him. He would go after it with everything in his heart. You look at those words, we're going up to Jerusalem, and it might seem rather innocuous. It may be like a passing statement. You can read by it real quickly. But if you remember back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 5, there was a certain point in the ministry of Jesus that we were looking at that Jesus gets done speaking to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ones who kept questioning him, the ones who were, were the ones who punched in early, who said, this isn't fair, we don't like the way you're doing things, Jesus. And to this group, at finally at one point it says, and the word is kind of clear, that he broke and he went across the lake, and he went across the lake and began now to just work with his disciples. But there's something more than his just going across the lake there. The reason he went across the lake is he also recognized what was happening at this point in his ministry, around chapter 16 specifically, is there were now death threats beginning to occur in Jesus. And if he stayed in that territory, there were plots against his life. And he knew that his life wasn't to be given up at this point. He knew that he had to go up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and the sacrifice. So he pulled them away purposely. Because he was intent on one thing, and that's to serve his father, so that when he served his father God, he would also, in serving his father God, which always happens when you, when you make that your life ambition, guess what? Others will be served as well. Listen how Luke describes it. Around that same time, around Matthew 16, 5, he, he gives a similar example of what Jesus is doing. He, sh- he shares the resolve of Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. Isn't that kind of an interesting thing? Not to go to his death, but to be taken up to heaven. 
Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The literal Greek expression resolute can be actually translated and should in some ways be translated as Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. There was, it was like, you know what flint is, that hard rock that you, you actually sharpen things with? It was in this sense that his face was like flint. There would be nothing that would crack this ambition. His ambition would go through anything. Listen to how Mark describes this. This is actually the parable passage that we're looking at here. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples, it says, were astonished. And it makes a distinction here. And while those who followed were afraid. It's an important distinction here because the the disciples are the twelve who are closest to them. They're the ones who got skin in the game. They're the ones who are willing to give up their life and at one point even say, you know, I'll go to the cross, I'll do whatever it means, I'll die for you. They're the ones thinking that Jesus is leading the way because what Jesus is going to do is going to march in Jerusalem. He's going to somehow rally all the troops. There'll be some kind of skirmish, but it looks like it could be the end. But in the result of it all, God's going to intervene and then this little country, Israel, will once again be free and God will rule through them throughout the entire earth, they will be the Rome to come. That's kind of in their mindset. There's a group of others who are following along beside. Not as much skin in the game going, this is scary. Because they knew their life was on the line. And they weren't sure they wanted to give their life for this. And so, as, as, as Mark describes it, Jesus is dead set. In fact, I think some of the people looked at Jesus as he made his way up to Jerusalem. Resolute ambition to serve God, his father, to do what his father said so that he would serve others through a cross that would make it possible for each and every one of us to have our own sin, to have our own selfishness broken so that we can follow him. There are people who looked at him and said, what a fool. He's walking into his own death. He's committed to certain death. So I was writing this this week. I wrote, you could say this was death by religious cop. Because the Pharisees hated him. The legalists couldn't stand him. They were looking for a way to bring him down. The proud workers who had punched him early didn't like this message of God's extravagant love. In fact, it outraged them. They had built their life on, on the fact that somehow, by what they were doing, the fact that they were serving Him, by the fact that they were good before Him, somehow they felt that God should come along and say, because of what you've done, you get in. And, and Jesus knows that that's not relationship. That's transaction. It doesn't work well in a marriage. And so these guys, they can't stand what Jesus is doing. They're crying out like we saw in the parable before, which Jesus gives is such a great parable. The ones who punched in early, they expected to get more. They felt, in a sense, even though the, the owner said, I'm going to pay you this much, they're crying out, it's not fair. And that's what they're angry about. It's not fair. We put our whole security on the fact that if we did this, this, and this, and we were really good, and we based ourselves on what we had done and accomplished, you would come along and go, good for you, you get in, you get in. Oh, wait a second, no, you haven't been good enough. But Jesus, you come along and you say, these people who come in at the 11th hour, they also get to go in. You're messing with our security. 
And anytime you start messing with people's security and what they've vested their life in, you start taking it away from them, whatever it is, whether it's their job, whether it's their money, whether it's their spouse and you and, and there's a divorce, whatever's going on in your life, your kids, whenever your security is put in something else than God itself, you can bet you're going to get angry. You're going to you're not going to like that. And Jesus, he, he rips all that from their hands in a sense. And he rips from our hands anything we just want to grab onto because of our resolute ambition. If we could just have this, we'll be okay. And God says, no, the whole reason I made you is that you only find your resolute ambition and security in me. In me alone. It's not in anything you can do, anything you can bring to me. In fact, people who come in at the last moment say, I'm really broken and sorry. They get in. It messes with your sense of fairness, doesn't it? And when you start seeing those things being ripped from your hands, that's why God basically says, because he's not some egomaniac who says, you know, put me, you know, in the Ten Commandments, you know, um, have no other God before me. It's, it's not because he's some kind of egocentric being that likes everyone to come around and just fall before him. He does that because he knows that when push comes to shove, you have your security, you put your foundation in anything else but God himself, it won't stand. He loves you so much. Jesus walks towards the cross and shows us this pattern of serving that says, I'm going to put you first no matter what. You are going to be what I'm most ambitious for. And he was ambitious to a fault. And he was ambitious to serve his Father God so his life would be an offering to save you and me from our own self-centered, self-absorbed, Easily empty life of merely trying to grab toys and trips and trivia so that we can begin to so put ourselves into him, into what he desires and to move into what it means to serve for him, that our lives begin to take on a meaning and our lives begin to have a relational significance because we learn how to love. We learn how to forgive. We learn how to be in relationship people with people on grace. We begin to understand that we don't have a right to hold on to things, but the things that are ours, we give to God. And if he chooses to take them, we go, thank you, God. I was in a, a therapy group a number of years back, and uh, I went into this because it, it was in a time in my life that I wanted both for my marriage and I wanted for my kids to understand what was driving me. I wanted to get deeper in understanding before God this sense of self-awareness. And I remember being in this group, and there was a guy who would often say something like this. I put in my 50 to get to. And I wasn't quite sure what he meant like that at first. When he'd say it, I put in my 50 to get to, and I began to realize as he talked and explained it further that he would work for 50 weeks a year in order to get two. What a horrible way to compartmentalize your life. I thought to myself, man, I want to put in my 52 and get my 52. Some people live resolutely ambitious just to be comfortable. You're going to compartmentalize your life to do that. Some people live resolutely ambitious to retire, and the earlier the better. Some people live to accumulate all kinds of things to be secure with. Some people live to control, hoping that somehow if they can control and manipulate the things in their life and around their life, they're going to find happiness and joy. Some people resolutely, ambitiously do all they can to avoid fear. Or they live 
doing all they can to not enter into conflict. Or they do all they can making sure they won't be lonely. What are you resolutely ambitious for? At your stage in life right now, what does it mean for you to say, I am resolutely ambitious for this? Now, if you know this verses 18 through 19, Jesus goes on to share this fact that when you whatever you are resolutely ambitious for will cost you your life. We have this silly sense that we can give a little bit of life here and a little bit of life there. But Jesus often taught, you know, Bob Dylan sang a song, you got to serve somebody. Well, Jesus actually taught that song before he actually wrote that song. When he said in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, you can't serve two masters. You're going to serve one or the other. In fact, I found it interesting when you look back at Matthew chapter 16, the very first prediction that Jesus makes of of his life being given over to the cross and to follow his father as a servant to the very end. When you look at that, at the end of it, Jesus clarifies this truth for you and me. He looks at his disciples and he basically says this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will find it. What good will it be for a person if he gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Everyone is giving their life for something. Everyone is serving someone or something. Everyone is driven towards something. Three times Jesus stops his followers and says, here's where I've come. I want you to look at my life and I want you to see that my whole identity is wrapped up in one thing, to serve my father. To whatever it means, to whatever cost, it is to serve my father. And in serving my father, it will mean serving others. And so three times he does this. Look at Matthew chapter 16, the very first time, his first, his first prediction of the passion. Verse 21, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. Be killed on the third and on the third day be raised to life. Now, I think this is an interesting one because this is the first time that he does this. And Peter and, and, and the group of them are around him. And he's asking, who am I? And Peter makes the answer. He says, yeah, you're the anointed one. You're the one that God has sent. And Jesus goes, very good. And then he moves into this prediction. And so they're standing around here and he just goes on. And he starts to get pessimistic on the disciples. They're a little bummed out. And so, so um, Peter goes, Jesus, come here a second. He goes, you know, I, I realize things aren't really good right now. And there's you know, people that are talking you know, trash about you. But you know what? Um, that's not really a good plan. You know what Jesus does? Looks him in the eyes and he goes, get behind me, Satan. He looks at him and says, you don't understand. You don't even understand what it means to be the anointed one. It's really easy for us to do this. We, we have our, our word and we have our lives and we in our mind have an idea of how we think it should be lived out. And yet we don't understand what God wants to do in us. And so these disciples and even the people in Jesus' day, they had a whole lot of teaching about the anointed one. The one they couldn't figure out, the one they couldn't put in there, the one that was a mystery to them was this Isaiah part about the suffering servant. I don't know how you can miss it in one sense, but how do you put the conquering Jesus with this suffering servant who would come to die? They couldn't get that. So Peter, in one sense, isn't too far off. But here's Peter saying, you know, but Jesus, don't be too pessimistic on us. And Jesus looks at him because you don't get what it means to serve the Father. 
And so they go along and there's a second time that Jesus goes ahead and decides, you know, I better let you guys know what it means to follow me, what it really means to serve God. It's not a bunch of optional components that that somehow you kind of compartmentalize in your life. It's a life given over to the father that you will do the father's will no matter what it means, because when you do the father's will in your life for whatever it means, it means that you will end up serving others. And you know what? It might not just be something just pleasant all the time. It'll actually cost you. You'll have skin in the game to the point that it really hurts. And so the second time he takes him aside and he tells him just a little bit more here. The son of man is going to be betrayed. They will kill him. He just adds a little bit. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And look at what the disciples at this point do. It says in chapter 17, verse 22 and verse 23, it ends and it says, And the disciples were filled with grief. They were just really sad. Peter wasn't about to this time say anything, Right. They're just going, yeah, you know, boy, they're they're sad. I kind of wonder, are they sad because they're thinking Jesus is just really having a bad day? What are they sad about? But I think it might be that it's starting to sink in. Jesus is pretty resolved. He's going to Jerusalem. Going to Jerusalem might mean his death. They'd seen plenty of people put on crucifixions when they would stand against Rome. Matthew 28, 20. Verses 18 and 19, the third and final prediction. Now it gets added to. You see there's layer upon layer. We're going up to Jerusalem. So he reiterates that from the first prediction. And the Son of Man will be betrayed. Now he makes it very clear to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. You will be actually, I will be betrayed over to my own. My own people will betray me. My own leaders of this of this faith are going to betray me. And then he goes on and he says, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now he's adding here, some versions say the Romans. He's basically saying, not only is it going to be my own people who are going to reject me and are the ones who are going to betray me, but now they're going to actually condemn me, hand me over to the Romans. So the whole world, the whole world, every one of us will be involved in, in, in this death and condemnation of a cross that Jesus goes to. And they'll hand him to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. To some degree, to one degree or another, serving God with your life will involve three things. And I'm going to share with you, you know, sometimes when you you look at, you get these commercials and they, they're, you know, saying, you know, take these pills and it'll be good for your, you know, it'll clear up your sneezes or something like that. And then you get these fine line after the commercials, like five pages of stuff flying by. You could maybe have a heart attack. It could be that you could be dead. For, you know, and just at least all these things. You know, they, they, they sell you this great thing, but then they have all these little things in smart, fine print. You know what's really cool about Jesus? I mean, anyone who's considering really following him with all of your life, he doesn't put it in the fine print. He's really pretty clear. He pretty, pretty much says, you know what, there's a good chance that if you follow me with all my, your heart. I'm, I'm not talking about comfortable Christianity. I'm not talking about compartmentalizing your life Christianity. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that says, Jesus, I'm following you with everything I have. I am so resolutely like you are going to do. I'll go to my death. I will follow you, Father, so that my life will make an impact and a difference for your kingdom. If you choose to do that, you will find at times that you're going to suffer. You're going to find that you're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to find that day in and day out, it's going to call you to surrender. That's the kind of thing that happens when you follow Jesus. Listen to his suffering. Jesus, it says, was betrayed. Jesus' heart was broken by the disloyalty of his friends. The very ones that he'd built his life into. 
He was condemned. The innocent, good and perfect love. Think about it is condemned. This person who does good always, who is going around and healing people. This person suffers injustice. There are going to be times in your life when you're you're going to be living your life and loving and sharing and caring in such a way. And you know what? People around you are going to condemn it. They're going to look at it. You're going to you will suffer injustice. Mocked, which is really just humiliation and deliberate insults. You're going to be dissed. There are going to be times that people are going to say things about you when you follow Jesus all your life that they're going to they're going to leave a mark on your heart. And it's going to be painful. Flogged and crucified. Physical pain and death beyond what any one of us could imagine. Jesus would do this for us and for any person. That's what his mission was. He was going to gather in upon himself. Think about it. Every possible kind of physical, emotional, mental, spiritual suffering that the world could inflict. And this he did as a servant. He did it with the resolve to make his chief ambition to serve God, his father. He did it for you and me. And I think about it and I say, what are, you, what are you willing to do for others? That's, that's part of what it means to resolutely, with all your heart, with ambition, serve God the Father with all that you are. What does it mean for you to suffer? It might mean for you as a parent in some ways that you have kids, maybe adult kids, and you've been, you've been given to them and given to them, and, and now you're in a place where tough love for you to suffer really means to follow the Father first, which means that you're going to have to put up some boundaries, and it's going to be so painful, it's going to be so hard, but you, you, for too long your fear has been centered in what their response is going to be or what could happen, you've got to say, that's enough. It may be that way for you as a spouse. You may be in a situation where you've been in this place where you've been kind of codependent, you can keep doing things, and you're thinking things are going to change, and God's saying, no, it's time for you to be courageous, to follow the cross and go towards the, the Father and to recognize that it's going to hurt. It may be painful. Your fears will come up. But you know what? In, in me, I will give you the strength to do this. It may mean for you that you have to look at what it means for you at work. What does it mean for you to do what's right, no matter what the cost? You may follow Jesus, and it may be in the process, which I have a friend who just recently had committed his life to Christ, who lost some of his friends. One of his friends is starting to come back because he's going through a tough time. He's starting to ask questions. What is it that's making a difference in your life? They don't mean sacrifice. What does it mean for you to give up something for God? And I'm not talking to get penalizing. I'm saying you give your whole life to Jesus. When you do give your whole life to Jesus, there's going to be certain things that you just, you know, it's going to change. It's going to cost you something. It may be a delay of a dream. It may be that you have to set aside a want. It may be that you're going to have to say, God, you know, I really did. You know, I was thinking I was going to get to 60 and I was going to retire, but now you're starting to do a new thing in my life. There's some people in this church um, that, that God has used in an amazing way on its source ministry. And, and there's some guys who have, who have given just kinds of energy to help this whole teenage prostitution problem that we have in the cities where they've gone in and they've spent the last year or so building these homes, building this place for this ministry. It's cost. It, it's sacrifice. Surrender. You know, I think about it when it comes to surrender. Just think about it. We think so, it's so easy for Jesus. But, you know, if you're really going to live this kind of life where you follow after God with all your heart, your, your ambition is to say, Father, I'm going to do whatever you call me to do. I'm going to do it with all my heart, and I'm going to give myself to you no matter what the cost is. As you make that kind of decision, you know that your life is going to cost you your life because your life is going to be giving servant to one or the other. So you make your cost, and you say, here it is, and you make the, the choice as you follow the Lord. It's going to mean for you because at points you're going to come to the very end of your own resources. It's going to mean for you to come to the end of your own resources and say again and again, I surrender myself to you. I surrender myself to you every morning. And we sometimes think that for Jesus, it was really easy. 
I think Jesus again and again had to go to this place where he'd get into a quiet place. That's why you read in Scripture, you read in Luke, Jesus is often found out by himself. He's by himself. Why is he by himself? He's coming before the Father. He's trying to listen. He's trying to hear. And he's once again surrendering himself, not to his desires, but to the Father's desires. So then we go to the garden. Here's Jesus in the garden. You think this should be really easy? You know, he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. He's got to, he's set dead on doing it and he's going to make his way there. He gets there to Jerusalem. He's sitting in the garden. He brings the twelve around them. He's hoped that they would at least be with him. He brings his three best friends, places around him, say, would you guys pray for me? They start to pray for him, and they, he looks up after he's been praying a little bit, and they're asleep. He does that three times. Isn't it interesting? Three times. There's something about these three times. He, three predictions. Three times. He's three times throughout Scripture. There's a sense that the third time you've come to the end of yourself. So in the third time, Jesus himself three times comes to the Lord in prayer. Comes to the end of himself. And what is he asking every time? If there's another way, if there could be another way, would you do it? But you know what? Not my will. I will surrender myself to you. No matter what it costs. Now, that I've painted this really wonderful picture, appealing picture of serving God. I just want to take sign-ups. Um, I'm serious. You know, what we can do is, um, there's in your communication card, just write sacrifice or suffering, and we'll get in touch with you. Or If you look at this passage of Scripture, you see Jesus going up to Jerusalem resolu- just with resolution, saying, my ambition is to serve the Father, because you know what? Your life will be given one way or the other. And then he says at the end, recognize this. If you do this, God will be with you. He'll be with you as you walk it, and He will reward you for it. In fact, if you, you can't read these without looking at this line that says on the third day. Look at, finally, when we are resolutely ambitious for God, He will reward you. Your Father in Heaven is so deeply in love with you that He will never abandon you. You see that in the life of His Son, even when Jesus comes along on the cross. It's a hard thing to understand. At one point, He goes, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? And yet his father never did. Because Jesus also said in verse 19 on the third day. I, I would love for you to underline. In fact, if we were in a, in a, in a church where this was a black church, I'd go on the third day. And you'd go, yes, sir. on the third day. And you'd say, yes. And you're supposed to sing a little bit back and forth. But in our settings, it's more like this. Yeah. Okay. But on the third day, underline it, mark it down, write it in your heart, so to speak. This is your hope. When you serve God and you resolutely with all that you have, say, God, I'm going to give you everything. And if it means suffering, if it means sacrifice, and if it means that I'm going to have to surrender day in and day out and come to the end of myself and live totally in faith, my security won't be in my stuff. It won't be in my relationships. It won't be in anything but the fact that I have a relationship with you. And this relationship is alive. It's powerful. It's filled with God's spirit. It's the kind of relationship that changes the very character of who you are. You begin as a result of this to start having the capacity to really love people he puts it in your heart to respond differently with kindness he begins to start taking this person who wasn't maybe dependable but in your heart you begin to become dependable and it's not an easy process but it's a work that happens when you give everything over to god i promise you that happens And as you do that, you also know that when it looks really bleak and it looks like death and it looks like it's going to come to the end there is this truth that says on the third day On the third day. On the third day. Wow. I'd love to take another 20 minutes to talk about this truth of the third day. And it's found throughout Scripture. Look at, on your own, you can look at it. Genesis chapter 22, specifically verse 4. Exodus 19, verses 11, 15, and 16. These are all third day events. 2 Kings 20. 
Hosea 6, 1 through 3. John 2, 1, which is an interesting thing because John is making a point here. He says on the third day, Jesus went into the, and did a wedding at Cana. Why is that important? Because God shows up for the first time in the ministry of Jesus in a miraculous way. You know what he's saying on the third day? There's a third day for you. You need to know, no matter where you're at, no matter where you think, I just don't have enough hope, I'm not going to make it, it looks like death, you know what? God says there's a third day. It may happen in your experience here, but God says there's a third day. That's why he says, when Jesus says that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Why? Because he knew there was a third day. And so if there's a third day, and it's going to be for eternity... Why not give it all now? Why hold back anything? I love this third day. On the third day, verse 19, he he will be raised to life. You will see, some of you will see the intervention of God. That's the third day will actually happen in your life. You will see it in the land of the living. And you need to take hope. If God has given you a word in your heart, if he's spoken to your heart, then grab onto it with all your, your heart because you know what? He promises to always fulfill what he says. So on the third day, your father will work on your behalf. He will be faithful. He'll be gracious. He'll be powerful to perform all he promises. So Matthew 20, as we look at this passage, is all about the simple question of service. The series titled, To Serve or, to be Ser- or Not Be Served. That really is the question of our life. That's the question of your life. You'll stand accountable before God. And the reason I know that is because there's a passage in Scripture where Jesus says about this person who's a servant. And you know what it says to him? Someday when he dies, he stands before God. And what does God say to him? Well done. Servant. You have the opportunity to hear that. It's not based on how good you are. It's not based on how much effort you even give. It's based on the fact that you trust Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. He died on the cross for you. He saved you. All that is taken care of on the cross. Now all he does, he says, therefore, in result of the great goodness of this God who loves you, who has a third day for you, give it all. Hold back nothing. I, I, I love examples we see sometimes through life of this kind of uh, resolute ambition. I've been reading the resolute ambition of a man, which some of you have read this as well, of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, A great book came out recently by Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard called Killing Lincoln. And I found this so interesting when I read this life about Lincoln. I've read a number of stories about him, some authors who who, um, don't give as much credence to his spiritual life and faith. But it's true, and they can see it, and there's accounts. He read the Bible every day. He prayed. He was so resolute to give his life that he would serve this country and serve his God no matter what it meant for him, that he would do it at all costs. In fact, you have to know sometimes resolute ambition is often not admired in the moment. If you're expecting people to be going, yeah, way to be, way to be ambitious if you're serving everything for God, it doesn't necessarily happen always in the moment. And it's often misunderstood. People look at it and go, you know, I don't get this. You could do this and this and it would be different. And actually, in some cases, actually causes division. Jesus was resolutely ambitious for God and created some division within the people of Israel. In fact, outrage about Lincoln's pursuit of war had many calling for his death, even in the north, even in the last six months of his term, because Lee had this ability as a general to constantly escape, and, and, he was constantly, and so they were always constantly concerned. 
And people were tired, as they said, of this endless battle, quote. In a New York rally, one speaker cried, let me remind Lincoln that Caesar had his Brutus. There were constant death threats on his life. At one point, he kind of hid a little bit, and then he decided before God, no, I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to be ashamed. I'm going to, with resolute ambition, walk this out as a president, and I want people to see that I'm not afraid. Peaches and fruit were actually sent to Lincoln that contained poison. In Congress, one senator, this just a month or so before the war actually came to an end, asked the simple question, how much more are we going to take? As the senator continued alluding and went on to allude to Lincoln's murder. Lincoln single-handedly, in many people's mind, had ripped this nation apart, causing brother to fight against brother. And for what end, they would say? Sewn in Lincoln's overcoat. Catch this. Sewn in his overcoat, it was especially made for him by Brooks' brother, is Lincoln's unspoken manifesto. In fact, every time he would take his coat and put it on, slip it on, slip it off, he was reminded because it was written in it, one country, one destiny. His focus was to serve God the Father, to serve Him what God called Him to do, no matter what it cost Him. Lincoln knew that as it came to the end of the war, historically assassination became common in those final days because the the victors were jubilant and the vanquished were furious. He even turned his victors angry at him when he began to talk about creating peace and healing in the nation. He knew that as he walked around, a single musket shot could end his life. But Lincoln resolutely ambitious for one thing, a united nation, a healed people, and freedom for all. Led. So it's April 4th, 1865. Give me just a few minutes and I'll close this. Five days before General Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant, Lincoln is standing on the deck of the USS Malvern, the ship that's coming in to the James River, into that harbor kind of area towards Richmond. Days earlier, Richmond, Virginia, the capital city of the Confederacy, had fallen. This channel was choked with burning warships as he's coming in. There's deadly little mines around. They called them torpedoes, which bobbed in the water. As Lincoln sees Richmond and what's left of it, it hardly resembles the city that he had once seen. It's burned to the ground. But it wasn't burned to the ground by the, by the Union artillery and any kind of bombardment that came from it. The people of Richmond themselves actually burned it down and didn't necessarily try to. So at one point when the, the, the ship, the Malvern, couldn't go any further, Lincoln gets out of the boat with his trusted bodyguard and a couple others, and they rowed ashore. Um, his bodyguard, William Crook, would write later, we passed so close to the torpedoes that we, would put our, we could actually put our hands out and touch them. And what Lincoln sees is amazing. Teams of people didn't want the Union to get their whiskey, which they had all throughout the city. So they went and they, they crushed and broke the, the, the um, barrels of whiskey one after another. So much so, it was said, that it was flowing in the streets, flowing in the gutters of the city. The respectable people were actually on their hands and knees lapping it up. There were, there were indentured servants. There were other um, people all throughout the city who were taking boots and hats and filling it and drinking. And they drank so much of it, they got drunk. And the city also decided they didn't want to give the union one of their greatest commodities. So they took and they began to burn all the tobacco. And the tobacco in the warehouses were so dry that it just burst into flames. And from one building to another building, the whole city was on fire. And at the same time when that's going on, the Confederate army decides to go have and blow up all their warships. Hundreds of munitions of these explosions are taking place out in the harbor. And it goes on for four hours and the whole city is leveled. All kinds of people are hurt. Many people die. 
Lincoln rows into shore and as he's rowing up the shore, he, he sees this devastation as he walks out of the boat. He starts walking a little bit and out from among the city start coming running these people. They're African. They're, they're blacks. They're coming running towards him. They're running towards him and, and, and his guards around him are so concerned about what's going to happen. They take their bayonets and they make this circle around him and hundreds start lining up around him and they're yelling out, Father Abraham, you freed us. And it says that Lincoln stood a head taller. He still at that point could have been shot. He's now just days from his death. And he gets to see only a partial payment, only a little bit of the third day. But he wasn't living just for that. He was living. Just think about it. Think about what you think of when you think of Lincoln today. We call him what? Honest. I read this book and I said to myself, Resolute Lincoln. Here is a man who said, I'm going to do whatever it takes so that, so that God, you would bring freedom to all kinds of people and you would heal a nation and you would bring this about and I will follow you with all my heart. I just ask you again, as you just, um, let's stand together as we close in prayer. I just ask you to consider. What is it you're resolutely ambitious about? As we kind of are in a moment of prayer here, I just want you to think for a second. I, you know what? We're not going to be a Lincoln. You're not going to be a Jesus. <laughs> but God's called you to something. I want you to really think for a second. God has called you to Him. And so what does that mean in your life? It may mean that your calling as a mom is that you're going to invest these years for a period of time into your kids. Like a Susanna Wesley did who birthed a Charles and Jonathan Wesley. It may be that you're going to give your life as a businessman and say, you know, I'm going to still follow God with all my heart. I'm going to be in relationship well with my family, but I'm going to build a business. God, and God's going to bless it and He's going to allow it to, to bring resources to all kinds of ministries. What are you resolutely ambitious for? What is God calling you towards? And maybe he's saying, I want you to teach kids in this Sunday school and some, some kids are going to be different as a result of the life that you have given. Jesus took us aside this morning and he said, Kevin and the rest of us, this is what my life is about. Consider what yours is.